Welcome back to another episode of Space and 60. This is your host, Clint Grauman, and co-host... Andrew Polipchuk. Andrew Polipchuk. The Chad is missing for his birthday. Happy birthday, Chad. Happy birthday, Chad. Happy 27th. 27th birthday again. Again. I think that happens to all of us. Yep. Well, man, we've had a really exciting week in space again or an exciting couple of weeks but some of the the best news i think is come out today today we're recording the show on the same day that captain james t kirk himself william shatner has gone to space yeah you got to be careful there's two kirks these days there's only one kirk there's I only agree. one i agree he did go to space 90 years old oldest man in space oldest person to ever go to space That's pretty wild did you happen to watch the the landing as they came back? Uh, I saw the parachutes, and that's about it. I watched uh, a couple of minutes of the post landing interviews, and well, Shatner just got—he was so taken by the experience, and also just became ultra philosophical. You know, like when you happen to go for one more drink at the bar after a long conference, and he gets a little bit philosophical. Yeah, were they serving in flight drinks? Uh, I wouldn't doubt it. Wouldn't doubt it. But yeah, that was that was just super exciting. You know, we've we've come to the point we've had the first mission for tourists with Virgin. Then we had Blue Origin, the first flight. We had Inspiration Four, and then we've had the second Blue Origin flight with William Shatner. And we like, I would say we're to the point that we've created. Routine, not perfectly safe, or well, I guess it's perfectly safe. Would you call it perfectly safe? As perfectly safe as sitting on a huge rocket can be. <laughs> on tons of fuel. <laughs> on, tons, on tons of flammable fuel. But you forgot the Russians. The Russians also sent an actress and, and crew into space. Oh, I know. Poor Tom Cruise. He was hoping to be the first. Uh, he was. He definitely missed out. You know, that would have been another chance. Tom Cruise is originally Canadian, right? Is he Canadian? Uh, is he? I don't think he is. No? Okay. Well, Tom Cruise, American these days at least, was headed to the space station with SpaceX, but it seems that the Russian crew beat them there. And I have to admit, I can't understand a word of Russian, but I would love to watch that that movie just to see it. It's probably going to be the Russian version of Mission Impossible. I will say we <laughs> did watch, and I guess this was last, last, last year, the Russian space horror movie sputnik that was awesome i haven't seen it yet Don't oh you're gonna love it but yeah I'd, I'd love to see that and you know human exploration has just taken such a hockey stick curve into progress recently and you know i think the next steps on that are lunar exploration and we've had some big news there this week as well i think so i mean we've got australia sending a, a rover over to uh, to the moon yeah, like a hundred million dollar project. Something like that. I mean, it's going to be a pretty nice rover. Yeah, looking forward to that one. And also, we're starting to see just so much development into companies that are in the new space industry, working to put resources on the moon, infrastructure on the moon. And today's guest, 
I think we're going to be equally excited to hear about what he and his company, Plus Ultra, I believe the full name is Plus Ultra Outposts, are going to do on the moon. So without further ado, let's welcome Carlos. Carlos, welcome to, to Space in 60. Thank you, Vince. I'm really happy to be here. Nice to have you on the show, Carlos. It's been an exciting few months in space with all of uh, human spaceflight and actors going to space, actors recording on the space station. There's just been so much happening. And it's something that inspired us to ask Carlos to be on the show. Carlos has a lot of really great ambition for human space travel and exploration and a great background and just a really cool story. So I I actually love to hear the story of how you got here. What pulled you into the space industry? Oh man, uh, where to begin? That's a lot of things you put on the table. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right, so very briefly, just to finish the introduction for myself, I'm currently the CEO of Plus Ultra Space Outpost. We're working on a lunar infrastructure. So we are a infrastructure company. We build and deploy and manage assets. We don't manufacture them. We just have them built and operate them later. And uh, our goal is to enable this learner economy, so a permanent human presence that is financially sustainable on the moon and anywhere around Earth. So yeah, that's a tall order for a company, especially for a new one. But we're full of ambition. The first project is about lunar communications, but we can maybe talk about that later. My background is actually in physics. So I, I didn't start in the space industry, I studied physics. I, I studied actually particle accelerator physics, which is as niche as it gets when it comes to, to experimental physics. While doing my master's in that, I actually realized that that work wasn't really for me. I wanted to do something more exciting. And that was around the time when these space mining companies started popping up, the planetary resources, deep space industries, uh, and they were making the news, they were making headlines about mining asteroids. And, you know, I was looking for something new to do, so I said, okay, let's look into this, how crazy is this idea? And you know what? It wasn't crazy at all. Uh, it was definitely something that could be done. Okay, these companies didn't make it, but, you know, the technology was stopped there. The environment from a commercial, regulatory, political point of view was almost there. And I said, okay, let's let's get into this. Let's try to get into space industry. But, you know, my background was exclusively in physics. And I was a very technical guy. I knew absolutely nothing about business, nothing about systems engineering, absolutely nothing about space regulations, except what I had managed to pull together on my own for doing research for some months. So that's where the journey started. And it took me a while to actually find the place where I could fit, you know, but uh, I started doing some consulting for companies. I did another master's with the International Space University. And after a while, and after a brief stunt at uh, McKinsey & Company as a consultant, I finally managed to get into a space company. This was seven years after I started <laughs> doing that. But, you know, finally I managed to join a space company as the corporate strategy manager Cleo Connect in Germany. After that, I decided, okay, let's let's get actually working in space, not just in some company, but actually doing my own thing. And it was the perfect time for the moon and the perfect time for a company like Plus Ultra. And I guess here we are now, <laughs> almost two years later. I think that's pretty exciting. And so 
going to the moon. That's that's the story for Carlos going forward. <laughs> yeah, that's the story. That's the first step. So what I want to do, the goal I set for myself is I want to be a, an important player in the development of the space economy. Doesn't have to be like I have to be the Elon Musk of the space economy. That may be too ambitious, but um, I still want to have an important role. And you know, the moon is definitely the first step. After that, hopefully Mars, hopefully the asteroids, and we'll see. Well, I guess the first question is: Is there going to be a Santa on the moon? Yeah, I guess so. The question is whether it comes from the North or the South Pole. <laughs> I guess on the moon, we're looking at the South Pole. <laughs> Everyone looking at the fuel deliveries from the South Pole for Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> What's the most important thing that you want to do in Cislunar? Like if you had to take all of your ambitions and focus them on one thing, what would that be? I think the most ambitious part is reaching financial sustainability for Cislunar activities. So, I mean, going to the moon is the easy part, believe it or not. I mean, you just need a ton of money and that's it. The hard part is making it sustainable without relying on government handouts. So, of course, the government can go to the moon. We've seen that already 50 years ago with Apollo. They just can increase the budget of NASA and they will get there. But staying, that's the hard part. So you need to find sources of income. That means commercial revenues, most likely, or that means activities that usually do not require income, like research, like military activities, or just people living on the moon. So reaching that stage is really the big challenge. When we reach that, we'll stay there for good. I mean, my my company, Plus Ultra, we, we want to enable other businesses on the moon. We want to enable the creation of value chain. That's why we focus on infrastructure that enable services, that enables other businesses. So you're starting off the communications. You're going to build the internet on the moon. Yeah. The reason that there's a lot of reasons for that. The most straightforward answer is that that's the easiest <laughs> that we could do. We're starting easy. I mean, communications, satellite communications are a known science. There's nothing, almost nothing we don't know about satellite communications. So that's the relatively easy part. It's also the easiest part from the commercial point of view because the people that are building landers, the people that are building resource extraction, they're the ones dealing with the government. They're the ones dealing with the complex procurement processes from NASA, from ESA, from the space agencies. We sell to these guys. And these guys, they're really open to new opportunities, to new ways of lowering their costs, of making their business sustainable by having new capabilities, new activities they can offer. And so far, everyone's been really excited about what we're doing. So the commercial development still very hard because there's not that many companies. It's not a big industry, but it was definitely the, the right first step. Uh, I think then communications and navigation, then they, they provide a very easy gateway into surface infrastructure because you can have local augmentation of communications and navigation. So either local beacons or local repeaters uh, for communication signals, or even local Wi-Fi hubs that just use your satellites as the backhaul trunk. And from there, you're already on the surface and you can start building other surface infrastructure like roads, landing pads, power services, even resource provision, like water, like oxygen, things like that. Um, so communications was really the, the gateway that enables these other surface activities that 
can be then your market for the surface infrastructure. Is there a lot of latency on communications between the Earth and the Moon? I mean, Moon is on, well a little over one light second away. <laughs> so we're talking three seconds round trip most of the time. It really depends on where you land on Earth and where you are. So if you're an operator in the eastern coast of the US and your ground station is receiving in Australia, then you have to go through the fiber network and that adds some other like 200 milliseconds round trip, 300 maybe. Uh, so it really depends, but yeah, we're talking three seconds. You can still do live calls. You just have to be patient and really let other people finish their <laughs> sentences. So is the bigger problem then and the bigger need for communications on the moon, is it is it really about maybe having infrastructure on opposite sides of the moon, being able to communicate with one another? Yeah, so coverage is definitely one of the key pain points, being able to access the poles, being able to access the far side, even point-to-point -point communications. But, you know, one of the, the key aspects that people have been asking for is continuous access to their assets. So 24-7 connectivity, being able to not plan around communication windows, but rather have communications always on. That allows you to maximize what you get out of the lander. You don't have to send orders twice a day, download data twice a day, and then the lander sits idle most of the time. You can continuously do things. If there is an error, you can immediately troubleshoot. You get the telemetry continuously, even down to the final second, final millisecond before the error happens. And you can really understand what's going on with your spacecraft there. And the other big aspect that people were asking for was accurate navigation, which is another service that we can provide with our own satellites and that allows you to land more in a less risky fashion, so more safely, instead of just hoping that there are no boulders wherever your lander is going to, because that's what they're doing at the moment. They just hope it kind of goes well <laughs> instead of right. knowing what's actually going on. So my understanding of when Apollo 11 was landing on the moon, they essentially turned off navigation and Neil just took over the controls to land. I, I don't know that that's true or if that's Hollywood fiction, but it certainly seems to be true. And so what you're proposing would reduce that that risk. Definitely. I mean, especially robotic landers, they don't have the luxury of having a person to land them because of this delay that we talked about with the moon, these three seconds, that's way too much when you're approaching the, the lunar surface at two kilometers per second. I mean, that, that's the difference between crashing on the moon or just topping six kilometers too high. So they have to rely on autonomous systems and these autonomous systems, they do need as much information about their environment as they can on board the spacecraft. They also cannot wait for the information to be calculated on earth and then sent to the to it this capability of autonomous navigation in an accurate fashion is definitely what people are asking for super interesting i guess it's not a case of tesla's autopilot but <laughs> no it's um it's actually a bit harder than that so at the moment the accuracy in in the orbit determination on the moon is around two kilometers and uh, that's what people have been saying so two kilometers when you're landing is definitely a pain that's a big error uh, yeah right. that's that's a big error that's also the difference between landing in a crater ridge where you have continuous sunlight or inside the crater uh, and that's the difference between landing in a place with no boulders or, or a place that has slope too high so at the moment the approach is just they're going for very flat areas that are completely risk-free 
that are also extremely uninteresting. <laughs> you, you don't have any water in those areas because you don't have shadows. You, you don't have many geographical features because you're away from craters, away from, from any mountains that might have formed. If you manage to bring that accuracy of positioning down to 20 meters, which is what we want to do, then you can actually start doing very highly precision landings very close to places where you actually want to go. And then your rover just has to row 20 meters instead of two kilometers, right? Right. You remember when India's Chandrayaan to the, the Vikram lander had a hard landing. Mm -hmm. Do you think that having this type of connectivity would have made a difference there? I remember watching the trajectory take a sudden dip and I remember turning to the person watching the show with me and I was thinking, wow, that, sh that shouldn't look like that. Yeah. <laughs> you think that would have made a difference? Maybe not, but maybe good for the next lander that they would send. So at this point, they would get, if they have 24-7 connectivity and they have high-speed connectivity, they can download much more data closer to the actual happening of the accident. And that lets them understand in a better way what's going on there. Maybe with the Bereshit lander, they could have made a difference because they had a problem with one of the inertial measurement units, if I'm not mistaken. So maybe they could have detected that earlier if they had, for example, an, an alternative way to determine their position and they could have checked with the data that it wasn't working properly. So maybe that landing would have been successful instead. But what we're talking here is not rather successfully landing, which is, of course, one challenge and it's, of course, nice, but landing close to interesting sites. And also when you start deploying assets on the moon, landing them close to each other instead of all over the place. That's the, the key interesting part. So I think one of the, the interesting things about this entire problem, there's a whole science-based and exploration aspect to it that we all look forward to. But at some point, these things have to be profitable, which you mentioned earlier, and they have to make money. What do you think the pathway to revenue is for this type of endeavor? Mm -hmm. I mean, short term or long term? <laughs> That's the, 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 there are different answers. Short terms, the key is to work on the cost side. So if, if your constellation costs $1 billion, it's never going to be profitable. You need to make it lean. You need to make it for the lowest cost that you can. That means using newer technologies, even if it means a higher technology risk. That means relying on new launchers or new rideshare capabilities, even if that means a potential delay or a potential failure of the mission. Because if your costs go too high, the market is just not big enough to make it profitable. Once you manage that, then you have to convince people to actually use your system instead of the traditional way of talking back to earth. So that means having a way better and overwhelmingly better value proposition compared to the alternatives. And in this case, what we're doing is improving communications speeds and navigation accuracy by two orders of magnitude, both. And that is definitely interesting enough for some people. That is in the short term, but then still you are just another step removed from the government funding, right? So the government pays your customer who, who pays for the communications. If we really want to make this sustainable in the long term, what we need is people on the moon just living there and doing their lives on the moon. Because, I mean, every single value chain on Earth ends in people or in military or in research. So at some point, we need people on the moon doing one of those three things. 
usually consumer is the largest type of market. So if we have people there just doing their own stuff and living their lives, that's when we'll have a proper sustainable um, economy there. So once you have your sustainable economy, what, what do you imagine is going to be the next step? There probably are several steps that happen simultaneously. One is a more extensive orbital infrastructure. At the moment, the orbital infrastructure that we have is just communication satellites. And that's really not that much. It's great, but it's not that much. We need stations, manufacturing satellites. We need platforms that act as platform for payloads, for communications or observation, instead of launching each satellite anew so that we can renew the components instead of the structures. We need recycling processes to get rid of the space debris. All that stuff becomes easier once you have lunar resources. It becomes cheaper. And especially if you have a lunar economy to serve, it's easier to get a business case for that. You know, simultaneously to that, what you will have is an expansion into Mars and potentially the asteroids. Mars is definitely there. It's, it's a good use of lunar resources as well to reduce the cost of Mars missions. And Mars will be eventually a value sink, so to speak. So we'll have people living there doing their things and we have value chains that end on Mars. But I think the asteroids are way more interesting because they truly enable the rest of the solar system to be explored. If, if you have asteroid resources, not only do you have an alternative source for scarce materials like platinum or, or rare earth metals or things like that, you actually have orbital capabilities, orbital resources to manufacture huge spaceships, to manufacture huge facilities that enable you to build spaceships, that enable you to go further away. So that's where we will start really unlocking the solar system. And then we just come up with the same question. How do you make that sustainable? Well, I don't know, people living in Jupiter, um, well, not in Jupiter, one of the moons. <laughs> we'll see, right? But in the end, when we reach that point, we will be at the same dilemma that we have now with the moon and with space. So we will look at it, we'll say, it's definitely interesting, but there's no business because there's no one, and there's no one because there's no business, right? So we'll have to, again, work around that conundrum. I don't know if that will be in... 50 years or in 100 years, but uh, I think that's the, the future that we could expect there. It's a very exciting future. I like, Carlos, where you've taken this. You know, I think a lot of people think of the moon as a jumping off point, but when you actually drill down into everything that's required to explore the solar system, let alone outside, there's a lot more to the moon and a lunar economy than, than you might first think about. Definitely. The moon is the first necessary step. If we don't have activities there, we're not essentially going anywhere. If we want to do anything in space in a sustainable manner, we need people living somewhere in space. Otherwise, what's the point, right? How do you think the tourism market will evolve to use these services and capabilities on the moon as well? I mean, is it is it going to look like the 50 years between spaceflight by civil and military organizations to today, you know, the day that we're recording this was the day that William Shatner went to space with Blue Origin. This is 51 or 52 years, maybe a little longer, actually, than when we started spaceflight with Yuri Gagarin, you know, with the first. So what does that look like on lunar expeditions? Are we going to see a shorter time, a more complicated journey? How, does the, how do you think that looks? I believe we'll definitely see a shorter time here. I mean, the the Apollo era, the, the Yuri Gagarin era, that was a technological anomaly. 
So we, we shouldn't consider that we've been slow since then. We actually were evolving at a good pace. That just happened that governments started pouring money into that and people went to the moon literally in a tin can. But you know, now that we have the capabilities or we will soon have the capabilities to send people to the moon, to send people around the moon, I'm pretty sure that we'll start seeing some tourism there, even if it's just the very high net worth individuals. But you know, if you have a lander like a Starship that can take 100 tons to the lunar surface, so you can take 10, 20 people plus supplies, no problem. Couldn't you offer tickets like the Apollo experience? Go land on the moon, stay there for three days and come back. doesn't have to be like you need a base there for people to start doing activities. Or just going around the moon and orbiting. That's way more interesting than what Inspiration4 has done. And they, that was already pretty exciting, orbiting the Earth. But, you know, that was just orbiting the Earth. I mean, if you go and orbit the moon for a while, that's way more exciting. So the, the human spaceflight capabilities for going to the moon and going to lunar or space to Earth orbit, not that different. And I'm pretty sure that will be one of the markets that takes off early, even if it will just be a very one-off thing. So maybe we see two, three tourists a year because it costs, I don't know, 10, 20 million per ticket. There's not that many people that can afford it. But, you know, if it helps fill seats in trips. So I could expect that to be one of the markets that we see the earliest in terms of fully commercial activities, either in the form of short trips or orbital stays. For those of you at home that can't see Andrew, he's visibly happy and can't sit still in his seat thinking about no, I, the, I the opportunity to go to the moon <laughs> as a tourist. No, I, I'm going to be the... Um... You know, I, I can imagine now signing my daughter's permission slip to do go space camp, and I'm going to be the the chaperone. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that would be, I think we're closer to that future than we really think. The moon is a very attractive prospect. It's way more attractive than anything else we've done in space. I mean, of course, we space people, we, we know Earth observation. We, we know that's interesting. We know mega constellation. We know that's cool. We understand the engineering challenges uh, and the, the commercial challenges and financing challenges of private space stations. But the people don't see that. What, what people see when they look up is stars on the moon. We, of course, see planets, but most of us cannot recognize them. So they see the moon, and that's already a way more powerful incentive for people to go there than anything else you can offer to them. I mean, sure, going to a private space station and just floating around is exciting, but that's way harder than explaining to people than, hey, you want to go there? You can just point at it. And uh, as soon as we start having capabilities to stay there, I mean... It's just a no-brainer that we will start doing that. So, Andrew, who's the first artist on the moon? Is it Dave Grohl or is it Yo-Yo Ma? I was going to go, I don't know. I was going to say hockey. It, it's going it's to be a hockey game in the moon. <laughs> <laughs> that could be cool. Or a basketball game. Uh, or a basketball I mean, realistically <laughs> speaking, the first artist is going to be some very famous artist. Like, I don't know. Kanye West, maybe. <laughs> Someone that has a lot of money, makes a lot of money. Wow. <laughs> oh, no. You know, building a, a space company in this day and age, I think we're at the time whenever there's likely the most money available or money is flowing the most readily for new space companies. And we're able to do things and try things that 
previously couldn't be done because of the size of the companies that were in charge of the space industry. You know, and I, I see people like you out there building businesses in the space industry and you come from a non-traditional background to get into space. And I think a lot of us that, that come onto this show actually come from a non-traditional background. But more than that, we're seeing new space creep into outside the geographic domain of where space has been popular. And the U.S. has been the elephant in the room when it comes to, to space investment and space companies. But now we're seeing companies pop up all over Europe um, and now in India and Australia and your company, what, what country are you based in for the, for the callers or for the show? We're based in Spain, but we also have offices in Germany and Luxembourg. And you're originally formed, though, in Spain, right? Or did you form in Germany or did you form in no, we, Luxembourg? We were formed in Spain originally, yeah. Are you, are you finding the, the government support in Europe to be good? Or is it growing? Is it trying? Is it amazing? What's it like today? I'd like to think they are trying. <laughs> it's not good. The problem we have in Europe that the U.S. doesn't have, for example, is that we have 27 different governments instead of one federal government and then, then some states, right? Well, we've, we've got 51 governments here. Yeah, yeah, but NASA <laughs> still depends from the federal government, so they kind of have one head, right. one entity giving them orders. Uh, of course, they have to fight to get the budget, but but that's a different story here. They have to fight to get the budget. And then you have the different countries. Some of them have their own space programs that might conflict with ESA. All of them have completely different priorities. There's no single direction for this space agency to go to. And you can tell that if you look at the priorities of the current director general who came on board this year, was it? Uh, or last year already? I lost track of time during the pandemic. But yeah, when he came on, on board, his priorities, they almost didn't mention space. He was talking about industrial development and reorganizing ESA and some things about space debris, but that's it. There were no priorities in terms of the moon, Mars, even scientific exploration wasn't even there in those five top points. So that's a reflection of the conflicts of interests that we have in, in Europe. And I'll give you another example, a more concrete one. Uh, you probably saw very recently the Moonlight Initiative from ESA, who is also trying to make uh, constellations for communication on the moon. This Moonlight Initiative had support only from four countries, I think. All the other countries, they said it wasn't worth their time, so they were not putting money in outside of the exploration budget, which ESA can define at their own discretion. But that shows you how unaligned countries are here. Some countries want to go to the moon. Some countries want to focus on Galileo. Some countries want to focus on Sentinel. Some countries don't want to do anything like that. They just want to, I don't know, manufacture solar panels. So government support here is at the very best chaotic. If you happen to do what they like to do, then you might get some support. So yeah. I wish we had the same level of support here in Europe that you guys have over in the US. That's one of the reasons why we will be opening an office in the US uh, early next year. And you know, commercialization is is an all or nothing game. I mean, you, you can't say, well, I will just finance some commercial players and so on, because then the, the incentives disappear. You have to do it like NASA did with 
commercial transportation, commercial orbital transportation, or commercial crew, or commercial lunar payload services. They give you some money, fixed fees contracts. If you fail to raise enough amounts of money to complete your development, if you fail to get commercial customers, then you're out. That's your own problem. If you don't do that, if you keep funding them, if you keep changing requirements, if you keep giving contracts to the same guys without creating competition, then the incentives for reducing the cost and the incentives for having new innovation and new systems, then they just disappear and you're stuck with the old way of doing things. One of the things that I think we all as investors of the industry could do better is better demonstrate how advancements in space exploration help us here on Earth. And what you're telling me there when you were saying, you know, if you want to do something with the Sentinel system, you get support for that. For Galileo, you get support for that. And what that is, is, is maybe an indicator that we're seeing the benefit on Earth from space activities. And I think that's something we could all do better, whether it's here in the US or Canada or in Europe or Australia or Latin America or whoever has or Asia, whoever has a space program is how do we translate what we're learning there into benefits back on Earth? Because we see different dynamics in different countries and different regions on the level of commercial support. It's not just about making revenue, scientific support. It's not just about learning something new. But how do the people that pay taxes that ultimately fund these programs benefit from those programs? And that's not at all a critique on, I think, the people. I think it's it's justifiable. So how do we how do we as an industry do a better job of being ambassadors for that? Mm-hmm. You know, in the cases of Earth observation and navigational data, for example, that you can find easy answers, right? So Earth observation can have direct impact in the maritime industry, in aviation, in agriculture. And you get a lot of companies that they're essentially agriculture companies using space data, even though we classify them as space companies, right? So on that front, is it's easy to see. You can immediately see how it can help reduce the cost, reduce the use of water, reduce the amount of labor that you need. You, you keep seeing these efficiencies with Earth observation or even communications. You can see how it can improve the connectivity and the lives of people in remote areas. The problem is where we go towards things that are more remote, like fundamental research on ISS or like lunar exploration. Here, the direct returns to, to everyone on Earth will come much later. They will come in the long term. They will come in, in the way of a new, a new industry for the countries to grow. Right, So we're seeing on Earth, the Western countries are being deindustrialized. The industry is moving to, to China, to Africa, to other low-income places. And we're seeing now that we're losing the middle class because we're losing these jobs. We need new avenues for growth. We need new ways for, for new companies to grow and to generate also tax revenue to pay back this investment from the government. This will be the return that we see from lunar exploration, for example, when we have a thousand companies generating more than a million revenue or 10 million in revenue every year each and creating more than a hundred jobs each in each country. That's when we will, when the governments will have an obvious return from their investment here. But otherwise it's really hard to justify. And, and, and that's why I think the answer to that is that we need to stop relying on government funding. Of course, it's a great tool to catalyze the development of the industry. I think 
NASA is doing it the right way by creating demand instead of creating services. So they create, they say, I want to go to the moon. I need someone to take me there instead of building a new lander and then going out to people and saying, hey, do you want to go to the moon? I have this lander, right? So they're creating demand, which is a better catalyst for economic activity than creating supply. But in the end, the goal of all of us has to be to stop relying on the government. I mean, if your business case consists exclusively on getting government contracts, you're not doing, I mean, you might do a business, definitely. You might do your country a service, but you're not doing the overall communication of the space industry any service because, you know, taxpayers will look at you and they'll say, we're just, you're just leaving off tax money and, and I don't want to pay for what you're doing, right? right? So that has to be your goal to to tell people we're not government contractors. We will provide services to the government, of course, because why not? But that's not our our nature. That's not our essence. That's just another thing we do, same as any other company would do when the government wants a service, right? Right. And I think on this show, we should just declare the moon is going to be (laughs) (laughs) tax-free. Definitely. Tax-free, free uh, free haven for for everyone. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Be sure to stop in the duty-free shop on the way out. (laughs) (laughs) Or a moon bar in a moon (laughs) pie. Yeah, I think, you know, the public and taxpayer they don't want to pay for our dreams, and that's totally understandable. They want to pay for some sort of return that, that benefits them. And I'll reiterate, I, I would love to see us as an industry being better ambassadors for the downstream productivity of the technology that we produce to help users, to help people, to benefit life here on Earth. Yeah. So. It's coming up on the end of our our time here, and you've been incredibly generous with all of the the time that you've given us. So I would love to put Andrew on the spot today and let him ask, what's the one big question that we need to be asking Carlos before we let him get off to the rest of his evening? What is the one big question, Carlos, that you want to answer? (laughs) I'm turning it right over to you, Carlos. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what did we forget to ask you, Carlos? Maybe I'll tell you a bit more of what I would like to see. And it's not a question, but it's maybe what I would like to see in general in the space industry. And that is a more collaborative and a more commercial-oriented environment. At the moment, what we see in the space industry is just a huge number of big players that work together to get government contracts. And they do their own plans independently of each other. And then you end up with a bunch of systems that don't work with each other. I would like to see more people thinking the way we think on Earth. I mean, if you want to start a business on Earth, if you want to start a transportation business, you don't start thinking about building roads. You don't even start thinking about designing trucks. You buy the trucks and you do a transportation business. So why, when we think about the moon, everyone wants to do the whole thing on their own, right? I mean, that's something I... I get that it has historical reasons, but we have to get rid of that mindset. I mean, if you want to go to the moon to extract water, you don't develop a lander. You you don't even develop the components that can survive on the lunar surface. You need to focus on where you add value. You, you cannot do everything. No single company can build a whole value chain on their own. So we need to, to start thinking that way that we will all be pieces, little pieces in the whole grand scheme of things and that there will be no grand plan, same as we don't have grand plans, that no Western economy centralized or plans from the central government. There's no 
government indicating, okay, this will be the architecture for the new hypersonic commercial flights, transportation. No, it just comes naturally from the different players, right? So we need to stop looking at the governments and thinking and waiting for them to tell us, okay, this will be the lunar architecture, you fit here, you fit here. We need to start looking at each other and saying, okay, what can I do for you to succeed? What can you do for me to succeed? And how do we align ourselves so that, you know, the providers and the customers get to space at the same time and we can deploy the whole value chain together? That's what I would love to see because I think that's the key to to success here. That's great. Sounds very Canadian. Can we all just get along? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, we don't have two Canadians in the team. Maybe it's starting to (laughs) to rub off. off? There we go. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, Carlos, it's been amazing having you on the show. We can't wait for the opportunity to have you back. We'd love to have you to drop by and uh, tell everyone at Post Ultra we said hi. Thank you, Clint. It's been a, a pleasure. It's been a great discussion. I really had fun. Thank you, Andrew, as well, for your excitement. If you can see the cameras, uh, he's been really excited every time I was talking and, and that just made me want to talk more. So Absolutely. that was really motivational. I'm going to draw a line in the space dust here and the next podcast is going to be from the Service of the Loon on your oh, communication network. <laughs> hopefully. Fingers crossed. That was great having Carlos on the show today. Oh yeah, what a background and what an interesting way to come into the industry from particle physics to lunar outposts. I've said it on many shows before and I'll say it again. There's nothing more interesting to me than seeing how people landed into the space industry. But I think Carlos coming from particle physics, he's kind of going back to particle physics. I mean, at the end of the day, That's where all the best particles are at. They're in space. Okay. Yeah. We totally sound like experts. Um, (laughs) You know, it's it's not such a stretch to go from particle physics to space. I'm not going to give them that one. I mean, if you're working in particle physics, I mean, you kind of got the chops already to work in the space industry. It's a a small space, big space. Yeah. Space. (laughs) But, you know, one of the things that I didn't expect to talk about on this show was asteroid mining. And... You know, I think about that one, and I I readily admit, I don't have a ton of background on asteroid mining, but if we think about mining the moon, you send assets to the moon, you mine there, you create raw materials, somehow you, you manufacture those raw materials into a product that you can use on the moon. But if you think about it, you're going to an object with an extremely tight orbit around the earth, you know, and if you miss your window for jumping off, you wait till the next time you're around, um, and it's probably good. But when you talk about asteroids, those orbits and those patterns that asteroids are flying are huge. And the chances of being able to land on one, take care of business, and get off, that's got to be extremely challenging. Take care of business does not sound like mining. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, I think to that, to that point, you know, well... When I hear about we're going to the moon, we're going to explore the moon, you don't really think of, and you think of the moon as a jump off point, but you don't think of all the stuff that you can do on the moon to get to somewhere else. And really, you know, I think Carlos summarized it well, you know, that's that's going to be the lunar economy and that's how it's going to be sustainable and profitable. And, and that's how we're going to actually build something there that lasts. Yeah. And, you know, I think he's absolutely right. I think that we'll probably see the duration between the time we see civilian government groups landing on the moon 
and space tourists on the moon will be incredibly short between the two time periods compared to what we've seen in getting civilians or an all civilian crew to space. And it's going to be going to be great. It's going to be like the Brad Pitt movie where you got FedEx and Pizza Hut and all that, all that jazz on the moon. Exactly. But yeah, I'm, I'm completely excited about it. And I wish again, everyone listening at home or in their car could have seen you visibly fidgeting in your seat at your excitement <laughs> at the prospects of going to the moon. Signing my daughter's permission slip to go to camp, space camp on the moon. 100%. Super excited. Yeah, me too. And to finish the uh, description of Andrew's fidgets, I've got a little dog at home. And that little dog, imagine a lap dog that just can't sit still. No matter what you do, he's just <laughs> he's moving. He can't stop moving. And Andrew just could not stop in his seat when we were talking about tourism on the moon. Uh, but I think we're all equally excited about the prospects of that. But, you know, equally engaging, I thought was Carlos's discussion on the value and the role that he saw in government support into the new space economy. Yeah, I mean, you can't, you, you can't discount that at all. Government support and kicking off and catalyzing any commercial venture is, is critical in, in new technologies and, and pioneering something. I think that it's it's right that the government customer is not going to fail to be a part of the value chain. That's got to be there to catalyze, to catapult commercial industry into exploring these things. And they will always play a role in the value chain, the revenue stream of, of new space companies. But you know, a fundamental shift that you see in new space versus legacy space companies is that there's a very active need because of the backing of venture capital and all of that money coming in from that industry to be able to push further downstream and get to the end user market. And, and like I mentioned to Carlos on the show, I don't think the average taxpayer wants to pay to fund my dreams of space exploration or your dreams for space exploration. There's got to be an end game to it where they benefit. And I think we can all do a better job at selling that story and telling that story to the public and to our governments. I tell my daughter every day she does her Velcro shoes. Thanks, space for that. I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think. No, no, I think you're right that uh, Velcro was a technology that came out of that. And Tang, let's not forget Tang. I don't know if any of the kids today have ever drank Tang. Yeah, I haven't seen it on a grocery store shelf in a long time. But I grew up drinking a ton of Tang. And so we have, we can thank space for our kangaroo shoes as kids and drinking Tang and just a wealth of other technologies that have been highly commercialized uh, here on Microwaves, Earth. microwaves. There's, a, there's another dream machine. So here's to the lunar economy. We're looking forward to all that it can be. And thank all of you for listening this week and tuning into the show. Have a good one, Chad. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, Chad. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Space in 60. Stay tuned as we explore new journeys into space with our upcoming guests and talk about the evolution of the industry. Be sure to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any new episodes. And we would love your input and feedback. So send us your comments and questions, and we'll try to feature them in a future podcast. We'll catch you on the next episode of Space in 60, where new space speaks.